to the London Magazine podcast. I'm Lucy. And I'm Lily. And today we're chatting to Sam Mills. Sam is the author of The Quiddity of Will Self and the memoir The Fragments of My Father. She is also the co-founder of indie press Dodo Inc. We're delighted to have an essay by Sam in our new October-November issue. In the piece, Sam discusses her fascination with the 1988 film Dangerous Liaisons alongside some more shall we say, hit-and-miss adaptations that have appeared over the years. And there's been a lot. The film was based on the 1782 novel Le Liaison Dangerous by Pierre de Leclos, which narrates the perverse duo of two noble manipulators and is considered a masterpiece of French literature. To start off, here's Sam to tell us a bit more about her essay and to follow that with an extract. The essay explores how I first watched the film of Dangerous Liaisons, aged 14, at a sleepover with friends. And I think I was just at that age when watching a very powerful piece of art um, is going to perhaps make a, a much stronger stamp than it would if I'd seen it, say, two decades later. Um, so I think it's an absolutely brilliant film but it particularly made an impact then. And I think the impact it made was shock. Um, and, and I was also very moved by it. And I thought it was very amusing as well. But it is ultimately quite a cynical and tragic portrayal of seduction and love. And, and I found that fascinating. Um, so then that led me back to read Le Liaison Dangereux, the novel. Um, and I was I was equally fascinated by that. Um, and then I investigate various other adaptations. So I went back and looked at Christopher Hampton's play. He had this outstanding cast and including Alan Rickman and Leslie Manville and all these up and coming stars. And it was just a, a sort of triumph. And then it moved to London and Broadway, it won Tony's, Olivia's, and it was this huge success. So it was the success of that play which then led him to write the film script. And I think he had various offers and um, Hampton's film, which was directed by Stephen Frears, was a roaring success and had Oscar nominations and was just one of the best adaptations of a text that I think has ever been made. And it's a very difficult text to adapt, so... Everything came together from the superb cast because you've got Glenn Close um, and John Malkovich playing the uh, manipulative aristocrats, Michelle Pfeiffer playing a virtuous woman, which isn't an easy role to play because she manages not to be too sort of prim and proper. A young Keanu Reeves as Dancini and even Peter Capaldi in a very early role. Um, so this outstanding cast and, and Oscar nominations and awards and so on and then Valmont was a terrible flop so even then I think you can sort of see how hard it is to adapt and how skillfully um, they adapted it and would you like to read a part of your essay for us now yep so I'll just read the opening of the essay when Pierre de la Clos sat down to pen Les Liaisons Dangereux in 1779, he declared that he wanted to write a book that would make a new departure, which would create some stir in the world and continue to do so after I had gone from it. The stir had last, has lasted for centuries. It was a success to scandal upon publication in 1782, reviewed as diabolical, whilst becoming an instant bestseller, 
savoured by Marie Antoinette, who commissioned an illicit copy for her library adorned with a blank cover. Banned in 1823 as an outrage to public morality, read by Virginia Woolf with great delight, who championed it in the 1920s along with Huxley and Arnold Bennett. And in recent decades, it has inspired a fresh spate of adaptations. From the superb 1985 play by Christopher Hampton to the appalling Netflix movie of this year to a forthcoming series due in November on Stars, our fascination with the book endures. Its complexities means that it is not easy to adapt, however. This book burns as only ice can burn, Baudelaire declared. It is a pity that there are more tepid adaptations than there are scorching ones. Thank you, Sam. It's, yeah, really interesting to hear about your own story with this book and with the film. And I wanted to begin with, then what is it about this novel that you think inspires so many adaptations? Um, I think the themes are very fascinating because you've got sex, power, revenge, love, a very powerful plot and potentially fascinating roles for the actors in, to inhabit but it's also very difficult to adapt. And so I think more often the adaptations tend to go wrong. So I think one problem is that it's, a, it's ultimately a tragedy. And I think one of the most interesting aspects of watching it is that the first half is mostly comic. So it lulls you into a false sense of security. It, it even inspires some sympathy with the villains and it inspires you to laugh with unease and guilt at the way that they're sort of romping around causing chaos and then halfway through there's this amazing shift in tone and it becomes darker and more tragic there's a love story introduced because Valmont decides that he's going to seduce Madame de Torval, who's very pure. And so it's a huge challenge for him because she's married, she's religious, she's going to really put up a very powerful resistance to him. And in chasing her and seducing her, he does actually fall in love. And within the very cynical world that they've created, love, in a way, is the is the worst thing that he could do because love becomes a sort of purifying and rather a, a destructive force. And it's, it's a lot more complex than, say, the story of the rake redeemed by love. As I sort of say, love becomes destructive and the consequences of their actions begin to be felt. So whilst it's not simplistically moral, uh, there is great, you know, you do see a, a, a real turn towards tragedy towards the end of the book and the film. Um, and they eventually destroy each other, Matai and Valmont. It, it is quite difficult to adapt because I think that there's a tendency to want to play on the comic aspect so in the recent Netflix adaptation they really just have focused on the comedy and it and so you lose this amazing contrast I think between dark and light between tenderness and brutality and you don't get that shift in tone which is part of its power but I also think as well that in, in a way I feel that the film has very little to do with the original text in a way I mean other than that there are you know, some seductions within it. Um, but I think as well, I think I thought the worst thing about the film was a sort of tacking on a happy ending to it and a voiceover which says we all do crazy things for love. I mean, it's a bit like 
adapting Macbeth and putting a happy ending on on the end of it and then saying well we all do crazy things in our desire to be powerful you know it's and it's 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 as ridiculous as that um and I think another problematic issue is that Valmont one of there are two main seductions in the text so he seduces the religious Madame de Torval and he also seduces a young girl who's just out of a convent who's due to be married um, and as an act of revenge, he s- decides to deflower her. So it's a really difficult and controversial plot thread to explore in a modern day adaptation, because if you look at it within the historical context, Leclerc is sympathetic to her because he feels that women didn't receive a proper education in this time and it was something he felt should be corrected. So he was an early feminist, if you like. So Cécile de Valange comes out of a nunnery. She is is very naive. There's a moral double standard um, when women can't really admit openly to, to enjoying sex and desire. And this whole tradition of women saying no when they mean yes is explored within the text and it's obviously something which uh, dismays and disgusts us today but you see back then that women were almost obliged to pretend to be pure and virginal and that to show lust or desire and so on would be quite shameful the other plot line, that of the rake falling for a virtuous woman, is probably a lot easier. But then it just becomes a cliche if you just simplify that into a happy ending. That's a story that's been done in quite trashy romance for centuries. So another reason that I think it keeps um, attracting adaptations is because it's uh, a satire and a commentary on class. Um, you've got this very, very wealthy, very, very idle aristocratic class who are just spending their days being manipulative and engaging in seductions. And you get these glimpses of poverty within the book and the film. So Valmont tries to impress Madame de Tervel by saving a poor family from ruin. And he, he simply does this as an act of show, but he is briefly surprised at how pleasing it is I think that that's what attracts us because the gap between inequality is 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 increasing year by year and so Christopher Hampton noted that in the 1980s everyone assumed that it was about the me generation and Thatcherism and Reaganism now it seems like it's more about the one percent do you think then that will perpetuate more and more adaptations as the years go by because each generation will find relevancies in the book yes I think so yes because it was written seven years before the French Revolution and so it's not I mean Marie Antoinette loved the book as Mm. I sort of mentioned and she kept a secret copy in her library so it's not it it both satirizes and celebrates the aristocracy to a degree Um, and there is a um, a tongue-in-cheek preface there's a both a preface and an editor's note I think that contradict each other but in one of them he sort of states well uh, this is a work of fiction and no one in our age would ever behave like this and it's it is playful and it's it's really sort of saying you know this sort of thing is carrying on and and these aristocrats are behaving as badly as this in in that respect I think it it um it, it is universal and it does carry across the centuries it, you touch on the difficulties of adapting 
the novel. And do you think a big part of that is the fact it's a epistolary novel and mm. you have these chameleon-like letters and you say towards the end that Valmont you know, falls in love with Madame mm. Tourvel, but does he? Because I think that's the great complexity of the novel is mm. these letters are penned mm. by a person at a particular time for a particular audience and we never really know mm. his true feelings. Mm. And I think that's really hard to convey on the yeah, screen. Yeah, that's true. So I wonder if the form is a large part behind the difficulties of adapting this novel. Um, yes, to a degree, although um, Christopher Hampton really rose to that challenge and he's he he doesn't shy away from using letters within the film. And as we were discussing, I think letters during that era were really sort of the gateway to inner emotion, to feeling, to those secret emotions, to everything that's private and being hidden from um, the public arena. So even when... so. Valmont is seducing Madame de Tourvel and under the same roof they're exchanging letters because they're perhaps just sharing feelings that they can't discuss publicly or even together one you know one on one they can't perhaps even put you know convey their feelings fully so and there's also a scene where Cécile de Valange is receiving harp lessons and her music teacher, Danceny, writes a, a little note saying, I love you, and he tucks it into her harp strings. So you've always got letters being often exchanged in public and letters therefore become this source of secrecy and danger and excitement. Um, and I think what's so good about the film is this Hampton takes them and he totally celebrates them and weaves them into the plot and they they move the plot forward and and he also sort of shows how for women during that time letters were a very dangerous thing equivalent um to sexting today um and being exposed because madame de matai um boasts about how she never writes a letter to a man that would damage her reputation she's very careful about what she sets down on paper it's only Valmont who she dares to confide in um, and that in the end is her undoing but as you were sort of saying there is this great ambiguity of point of view but even that I think Hampton does manage to sort of bring some of that across because as you say um there are so many ambiguities so when Valmont dies in a duel at the end um, there's a lot of ambiguity as to whether he actually commits suicide because he's in this fight against Donsony and he's a much greater swordsman. Um, so in a way, does he sort of give up or um, or does Donsony just have this great surge of power and strength and does he win? It's a little bit uncertain and that hint of suicide makes his death more tragic. Perhaps he has died because he feels so ashamed of his actions and so on, but it's a bit unclear. And as you say, I think I think the question of whether he's in love with Madame de Tourvel is is very interesting. And I think... There's probably enough in the book to support uh, the idea that he was, because I think Matai becomes very jealous at that point. It's the trigger for the sort of jealousy and the destruction that um, unravels between them. Um, and that m key moment where Matai says, it's war, and suddenly they're no longer allies, but they're enemies. 
and it's all about victory and surrender. But suddenly they're at war with each other. And uh, um, and in the end, they just they're both so masterful that they end up destroying each other. Um, and so I do think that he he does love Madame de Tourvel. Um, and that's what Matai picks up on. And that. So just going back to your first impression of the film, you say that you were shocked. So what was it that surprised you so much? And did you did you feel the same when you read the book? Mm. Um, yeah, I think the shock, as I said, is that very interesting transition from comedy to tragedy. Um, because I think the contrast means that they both heighten each other. Um, and there's only, actually, I was just thinking, there's only one other film that I can think of where you get that interesting transition. And that was... Parasite, which came out a few years ago and won the Oscar. Well, I think I think that employs a similar device because there's a lot of playfulness and farce in the first half of that film. I remember being in the cinema and everyone was laughing and then in the second half it becomes darker and darker and darker. So I think it's a really interesting device to use and it makes it can, you know, if it's handled well, it can be very powerful. And I think as well, it's that shift from cynicism to authenticity. Because you've pre been presented with something so cynical in the first half, it, when it becomes tender and authentic, um, again, it, it's, it's much more powerful because in a way you've been put in a very different mindset. So I think that's very clever, the way love suddenly becomes very shocking. Um, and... I think, yeah, and I think it was also shocking as well simply because um, I think its portrayal of the way that women were treated at the time was perhaps quite shocking. Um, and Matai was a fascinating character um, because, she I mean, she was so richly complex and Christopher Hampton cites her as his favourite character in literature. And... Um, in a way, I found her the most shocking character of all because Valmont is a bit more like a... He's not a caricature, but he likes to play with the stereotype of a rake and he likes to live up to that stereotype. He's actually, I think, more complex than he wants to other people to, to realise or even admit to himself. In some ways, he just wants to enjoy revelling in those caricature in that caricature. But I think um, Matai is really interesting because uh, she is a feminist, so she was a character who is far ahead of her time. Um, the way that Leclerc portrays her was actually quite revolutionary for the time. She talks about the fact that she had to reinvent herself um, as a teenager and how she was not interested in what adults wanted to tell her, but what was going on behind the scenes, behind closed doors, behind social masks. And so she educated herself thoroughly. Um, she learnt how to build a facade. Um, she read widely she learnt the rules of the game and she's quite scathing in her letters to Valmont about his victories because she says, well, it's very easy as a man in this era to just have a victory over a woman. And he said, and oft, and she also said as well, because women are compelled to, to chase and pretend, you often feel that you've achieved this great victory, but it's quite exaggerated. Um, you know, it's often just been a woman putting up a pretense <laughs> and they wanted you all along. So what's really so great about that? But she talks about the fact that 
for women in this time, you have to be so cunning in order to survive. And therefore, she takes great delight in conquering men. It's, it's one of her great joys in life because it involves far more skill. And she has to be so careful because one stray letter and her entire reputation is ruined. What do you make of the different endings? With, with Laclos, he ends the novel with Matai. She has smallpox, mm. she gets horribly disfigured. Mm. And is it Austria she, she yeah. runs away to? Yeah. But then in, in the film, it's left mm. a bit more open-ended. Mm. Do you think that adds to the ambiguity? Or what do you make of that choice of, um, of the film to end it that way? Um, well, actually, it, it, I think the film has a better ending. But then um, Leclo, um probably felt obliged to tack on this uh, ending to the book where he had to punish his villain. And I think... The fact that he does it in a slightly exaggerated way and that she suddenly, as you say, she gets smallpox and it's all, it seems very over the top and very convenient that she gets punished and disfigured in this way. So, I mean, Christopher Hampton feels that he, it's almost um, tongue in cheek that he's sort of saying, well, I'm obliged to punish my villain and he's doing it with a bit of a wink. But, you know, this is slightly ridiculous, but I have to do this because I've told this teller great immorality in a form that was traditionally about morality and and reinforcing those values so he he had to do that um but I know when I was reading about the film um there was a discussion between the director and Glenn Close and they were talking about how how to sort of have that final shot and Glenn Close said to them yes I, I can do this if you it was that she was partly um playing a collaborative role in in working out how to film that scene and it's where she gradually takes off her makeup and this sense there's a sense of complete uh, destruction and and despair that makes for a again it's part of, I think it's a very shocking ending um, um, because she's just lost everything it's this complete devastation and it's and and again we, we do feel moved and sympathetic to her despite how terrible she has been throughout the film I think we do feel something for her because she's lost the love of her life, her reputation and so on, and everything has come back on her. Um, and I think it, it, it's a more, it is a more elegant way, to, and it feels more fitting and more in tune with the tone and with the more sober and tragic conclusion. I think with the book, you're almost heading back towards farce and comedy, and it doesn't perhaps fit very comfortably with the direction it's taken. Um, do you feel as well the more contemporary adaptations pay pay a service then to the interiority of the novel? It's a lot of the action happens within four walls. It's very claustrophobic, very reminiscent of the French court. Whereas I feel in in more modern day settings of a high school, I don't know if it has the same a powerful claustrophobic effect and and I wonder what your take on that is yes I think that's true and as as we've all been discussing the stakes just simply aren't the same um so you know if you're seduced by a rake in a high school well I suppose I suppose it depends what happens and this is where it becomes a problem because Either you go for a plot line that's quite lighthearted and then it's a bit trivial, but then if you go for something very dark and heavy, that's got to be handled very carefully and then really you're exploring 
scenes that you might want to devote a whole film to if you're going to think about, you know, um, seduction, assault or rape, if you're going to explore the Cecile plotline from that point of view, then I, you certainly can't do it as a high school comedy. It, um, to me, that's just one film in itself. That And so I think that makes it very difficult to adapt. And it's it works much better, I think, when you retain the historical context, yeah. Do you think then it stems from perhaps a creative laziness or there still seems this desire to to have the dangerous liaisons brand <laughs> as such yeah. and, and I suppose it's the themes it, yeah. it encounters. It's, you know, love, mm. power, sex and mm. there's still a lot of contemporary fascination with it but it yeah. does seem quite problematic yeah, I now to yeah to adapt more. It is it is very difficult, um, and it and I think the you can see from the various performances how hard it is to get it right. So when you take the character of Valmont, um, I know that Alan Rickman's performance on stage was was widely praised and one critic said that he slithers through the action like a cat who's got the cream which is a really lovely way of describing it um and as we were saying so Colin Firth plays Valmont I mean I normally really like Colin Firth but I don't think he's a very good Valmont in the film adaptation because he's a bit boyish and a bit foppish and I think Malkovich gets just the right balance because he can be quite playful and funny and boisterous and charming but then he has he has real depths as well and as he falls in love um I think that is that he conveys that with real passion so we believe in him towards the end as a tragic anti-hero um, but then, so I, I never got to see the Alan Rip, Ripman adaptation because I was far too young at the time, but I have seen the recent Dominic West adaptation. Well, I think that was a few years ago. And I, again, I like Dominic West, but I didn't really love his betrayal of Valmont. And he, he was, as some of the critics said they felt he was perhaps just a little bit too boisterous, a bit too playful, but perhaps he played it just a bit too too lightly and, and I and I think that demonstrates that it's really hard to get the role right that each role requires such balance because as you've been saying um each character is so complex with various contradictions and ambiguities so you've got to um balance out all these different qualities with each part um and it is really hard to get it right and so that's why I always come back to the 19. 88 film as being the one that really, really works on all levels. And we would now like to introduce a part of the show where we try to answer some of our listeners' literary SOSs. We always try to match our SOSs with a writer who would be best to help. And we thought you would be a great match for this one, Sam. In 2020, you published Fragments of My Father a powerful and poignant blend of memoir and literary biography about parents and children, freedom and responsibility, madness and creativity, and what it means to be a carer. The form of memoir writing and expressing the naked truth of one's experiences can seem really quite terrifying and hard to navigate. 
One of our listeners has reached out to us to poise such a dilemma and it would and we would love to ask for some guidance based on your own experience. Okay. I'm trying to draw on my own life experiences in my writing, but I'm struggling with the idea that I'm being overly self-absorbed. How can I let go of this feeling as I want to write as candidly and honestly as possible? Um, well, I think it's really important when you're writing your first or second draft of any book, whether it's a memoir or a novel, um, to entirely let go. Um, there's a great piece of writing advice from DBC Pierre, which I think sums this up well, which says, write in a fever and edit in a cardigan. And I love this summary because I think when you're writing that first draft, just don't censor yourself, don't judge yourself, don't worry about anyone reading it. You have to give yourself complete freedom for things to flow. And I think when you do that, it will just free you up and, and you'll allow the story to come out. And there'll be surprises and you'll allow the, the memoir because, of course, it is... Um, non-fiction but it's still your story that's going to be unfolding I think it will allow it to just take its direction and I think that allow just giving yourself that complete freedom is really important and um, once you have a draft of your material that's the time when you might want to start judging and shaping and editing and thinking about it um, but until that point just don't worry um, because I think if you try to, if you're worrying too much early on, it, it's just going to um, constrict the writing and the and the joy of it too, um, and the creative process. And of course, a memoir is is all about being candid, and and often the very best memoirs and the most moving memoirs, um, such as H's to Hawk to Amy Littrop's um, two memoirs. Um, they work because the author has opened up and has been so candid, but they're also very carefully crafted as well. So I think there's got to be that right balance between emotional honesty and then cerebral crafting of your material and shaping it very carefully and so on. Um, but that emotion does need to be there, yeah. So we'd love for you to read an extract from Fragments, if that's okay. Okay. <laughs> so... My father has schizophrenia, and so the book explores um, his illness um, and the, the challenges of caring for him when he has this illness. So I, I'm just going to read an extract um, that explores the way schizophrenia is betrayed in fiction. I'd found it hard to find fiction that captured my father's condition, once I read a much-praised novel that was written from a schizophrenic's viewpoint but seemed unconvincing to me. Given that the illness fractures the self into voices and hallucinations, how can a coherent first-person voice narrating a classically structured story with a beginning, middle and end make any sense? Will Self was different. He knew how to write about madness. He got it. It was the surreal, nightmarish flavour of it that his stories captured, such as the quantity theory of insanity, which plays with the theory that sanity is a fixed quotient in society. If you cure an asylum of schizophrenics in London, then a group of sane and rational people in New York will go crazy. Schizophrenia is the most surreal of mental illnesses. I once encountered a schizophrenic who related that, whilst lying in bed in hospital during a psychotic episode, 
He had received all his visitors without speaking, a blissful smile on his face. He was living out reality in a Star Wars film, and each person who visited appeared as a hallucinated character from the film. Simplistic tales about schizophrenia don't tend to resonate with me. Art that captures its surreal, smashed psyche are the ones where I have an intuitive feeling of, yes, that's it, that's what it's like. Alice in Wonderland, with its strange dislocations of time and space and place, that is my dad's illness. The modernist fragments of T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland, these fragments I have shored against my ruins, that is my dad's illness. And Will Self, writing about a man who seeks to find patterns of meaning in the graffiti in toilets across London, that is my dad's illness. I remember as a teenager sitting down and watching an episode of Monty Python, my mum laughing with me, my dad silent. The way it jumps from one mad scene to another, from a man holding a dead parrot to the chorus of the lumberjack song, then back to something completely different, that is my dad's illness. So when did you decide to write Fragments? Was there a particular moment where you decided that you needed to put your story to paper? Um, yes, this this is really it was quite unusual for me because normally when I begin writing a book, I have a clear vision of the direction it's going to take. But actually, Fragments evolved from another book, and it and it sort of evolved almost quite by chance because I was planning a non-fiction book which was quite dry, quite academic, quite philosophical about texts and reading and the relationship between art and life and books that I had read growing up. And as I was working on chapters from this book, um, I just found myself writing a lot about my dad. And gradually I began to write more and more about him. And then I was chatting to my agent at the time and we were just discussing the fact that there are, uh, there were at that time, this is the summer of 2017, you know, quite a lot of memoirs and non-fiction books about doctors and working in hospitals and that there hadn't been much published from the point of view of a, an unpaid carer, which is something that um, so many millions of people in, um, go through in, in our country. Um, about There are about 7 million carers in the UK and yet uh, they're often invisible and I think the pandemic shone a greater light on them but at the time they were very much un invisible and so uh, that's when I sat down and decided to write about my father and looking after him and what I'd been through and to explore the subject matter and again it it all happened quite I, it all happened with unexpected ease in a way this doesn't normally happen I mean Writing is quite a tough profession, but in this case, I I sat down and wrote my opening chapters. So I think it was about 10 chapters and, and an outline and gave them to my agent, just waiting for his feedback. And then he just went and sold it quite quickly, <laughs> which was just fantastic. He sold it to Fourth Estate and I had a fantastic editor, Helen Garners-Williams, and then worked on the book over the next year. So it was an unusually effortless process compared to other experiences I've had yeah <laughs> you've described your book the quiddity of will self as being as much about your father as about will self yeah. and how your father's illness was a watermark on each page mm. quiddity had this surreal nightmarish quality to it whereas in fragments you talk more about 
the day-to-day, the real nitty-gritty aspects of caring for an unwell parent. The daily trips to hospital, the washing of clothes, supermarket trips. What motivated you to make the jump from the literary to the literal? (laughs) And I wonder if you found you enjoyed then having this space to to, to discuss political and... Mm economic and even romantic you know impacts that Mm. that caring for a parent had on your day-to-day life um yeah so quiddity of all self took a decade to write but this was not continuously I was sort of kept it took a long time to gestate and which I often find with novels um and so I kept circling back to it because the the premise of the book was that it was going to be the literary equivalent of being John Malkovich and he will self as the centre of fascination and as you have described the book had a very wild flavour to it and so it has five sections and the opening section revolves around a cult that worships will self and a man getting sucked into that and the second from the viewpoint of a ghost who has been murdered by the cult and then slips into will self study and then into his body and then influences as he's working on the book of Dave and then there's a section set in the future where Will Self has died and his body's been preserved and someone steals his liver and so on and so on um and so I feel that this this the surreal flavor of it um there's something of my father's illness in that and the first section is actually narrated by someone with schizophrenia though I don't openly I don't think I openly say that, but I think you can tell from references to clozapine, his medication. And so as he becomes involved with the World Self Club and stops taking his medication, events become more and more strange until it culminates in a big initiation ceremony, orgiastic initiation ceremony in a stately home with shades of eyes wide shut for um, the World Self cult. Um, And so, but obviously... Uh, when the book came out, um, well, it, 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 uh, there was sort of an interesting range of reactions to it. It was rather a divisive book. <laughs> Weren't most yeah. people surprised that you weren't a man? They, they just assumed <laughs> that a man must have written this book for some reason. Yeah, there was. A, yeah, that's really interesting because when it went to publishers, so this was not easy to get published, as you can imagine. Um, when it went to publishers, one editor rejected it for being too boisey, and that made me laugh because she had just just assumed that Sam was a man. One reviewer in the Daily Mail referred to me as he, but that was partly that was partly my fault because I played a uh, I played a bit of a game with the book in that the last section is narrated by Sam Mills, and the Sam in the book is a is a man. Oh. So you. Um, I was sort of teasing um, with gender and there are, as as in Will Self's novels, there are um, play, you know, as in Orlando as well, there are plays on gender within the book. Um, so that was part of part of the story but I think um, perhaps it perhaps it left though a slight frustration because um, I'd sort of explored my father's illness but in a, in a very strange sort of way and no one really sort of understood those elements of it um and naturally they weren't going to um, <laughs> and so I think when I came to write about it for my memoir Fragments of My Father I wanted to uh, explore it 
in a completely different way. And to do justice to his illness, I was going to write about it in a much more classical and traditional way. Um, and I also, also as well, I guess there's quite a... When you're writing memoir, there's a big moral and ethical issue if the person is still alive, that the way that you betray them and treat them and so on. Um, so that's why I sort of chose that form, because I had to... I felt that was most appropriate to exploring his illness. So it's, I sort of see it, them both as the same book, but written in, in completely opposite styles. Um, one mad and playful and surreal and strange and the other much more sober, sober and traditional and serious, yeah. And did you find one of those forms more freeing than the other? Well, I think Quiddity was more freeing. I've, you know, each book in a way ha has a flavour of its own and um, that book was always going was always outrageous from the start, and because it was an outrageous premise, and also because um, Woolsalf's early writing in particular was very provocative, so and that was more free to write, and and that was um, more fun. And I think Fragments was sometimes quite harrowing to write, actually, because in a way I was on a. I was almost playing detective and trying to understand my father's illness and looking. so I was looking at the history of schizophrenia and trying to come to grips with it. But I think the nature of the illness is that it is very elusive. And the psychoanalyst Christopher Bollas said that when someone develops schizophrenia, the family is left holding the fragments of that person and they've slipped away. They've almost become like a ghost. Um, so my father is always very mysterious to me. Um, and I think the book helped me to give give me some insight into him and, and I learned a lot about his illness, but it, he's always a little bit mysterious and elusive. And in Fragments, you delve into the lives of two literary male carers, Leonard Wolfe and F. Scott Fitzgerald, and they had very different approaches to caring. Mm. Um, and it was really interesting to see how their caring responsibilities impacted their writing. Mm -hmm. But why did you choose to ground your experience in theirs? Um, I think Leonard and Virginia Woolf were a really interesting couple to look at because it was a fresh way of looking at Leonard Woolf because although Victoria Glendinning brought out a fantastic biography of him, he has perhaps at times had a bad press for the way he treated Virginia. But actually, if you look at his story from the point of view of someone who was a carer, he was actually a brilliant carer to Virginia. So I think in this, it was really more in the 70s that he, he got a bad press, whereas I think the viewpoint is more balanced now. But um, at the time that Virginia became unwell... Um, there was very little understanding of mental health. So they really were fighting in the dark. And Leonard always remained devoted to her. Um, there were times when he wondered, should I put her in an asylum? Because many of his contemporaries did that. But Leonard went and visited one and thought, oh, this is a horrible, gloomy place. And he would never have done that to Virginia. But he did suffer all of the issues of caring that carers go through today. So that's just what's so interesting because I think we tend to put them up on a pedal stall as these grand literary figures. And what they actually went through was quite, was very kind of harsh and harrowing and difficult. And also we tend to have 
very romanticized ideas of Virginia Woolf's illness. And there is some truth in that because it was part of her genius. But obviously, in the early days of their marriage, um, you know, they're just dealing with this on a daily basis. And Leonard is struggling all the time with how much to intervene, how to handle her illness, how to to learn what will help her to remain stable and um, which in the end of the day seemed to be routine you know getting plenty of sleep having meals on time not partying too much with the Bloomsbury set um and just still be a husband yeah I suppose. yeah exactly yes yeah. so uh, yeah exactly because I think this was something my mother went through that conflict are you a carer or are you a partner and then, like how much do you want to intervene and lay down the law so some people then said well he was being a bit controlling but in a way it's that fine line between being controlling and being protective and that sense of responsibility that you have. Overwhelmingly in our literary clinic we receive queries about how to be creative and write against the backdrop of external pressures, family life, work, um, which seems to be ever increasing at the moment. Um, how do you balance the dichotomy between artistic and the practical pressures of life mm. well um i'm a full-time writer um and i'm not on a private income so it is a quite a precarious and uncertain existence and it means i'm very prolific but i i love writing so i'm i enjoy it and it's what i want to do every every day when i wake up i look forward to going and writing um and as for balancing it with the practical elements, well, there are, I remember J.K. Rowling saying that um, she didn't do any housework for several years when she was writing Harry Potter. Well, I'm not that bad, but um, yeah, I suppose certain domestic things sometimes get rather neglected. But at the same time, I am looking after my dad. So I always come home at lunchtime every day and I cook him his lunch and look after him as well um so it's just a case I think of of just being very disciplined I mean some people sometimes say well um do you have you know some people have said to me well if I was you know a freelancer I'd just watch tv all day but they they absolutely wouldn't do that because if you're if you're if you if you know that you're not going to be able to buy food or pay your bills if you <laughs> unless you unless you work you're 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 obviously not going to lapse into that kind of lifestyle. Um, you know that you have to do it and you, and you have to keep to your deadlines. And that's obviously part of the thrill of it as well. And it's a very good motivation. But um, I suppose, I, I, and I, always, I always try to take one day off a week. So I, I tend to write for six days a week. Um, and in the summer I started just writing seven days a week and then I got ill so I, that was overdoing it so yes I just very disciplined with my time. Because I think what you touch on very well in fragments also is you know being a carer and a writer they're both positions in society that sometimes do perhaps leave you feeling a bit of an outsider I think mm. I think mm. there's a, a part in the book where you you say you went out to the pub to see some friends mm. and you didn't really know what to talk about yeah. because you'd spent the whole day mm. either in your own head doing your writing or caring for your father and mm. and I think you you do get that disassociation across really well mm. in the book and was 
Was that quite quite difficult to to talk about in the memoir? Mm. Um, yes, I mean, I think when I was going through a particularly difficult period in 2015-2016, which coincided with setting up Dodo Wink, an indie press with Alex Spears and Tom Kewell, and that being perhaps quite a shock to my system because I hadn't really realised how much is involved in publishing a book and how tremendous the workload is. This coincided with my dad suddenly having um, real issues, um, some really serious health problems because he began to develop these attacks of catatonia where he would suddenly fall into a waking coma and be unable to talk and speak but he would be conscious and one of his doctors said it was extremely rare and he'd only come across it once in the last 30 years of treating patients and I think when I then wrote the book a few years on and people were reading it they would say to me oh I just didn't realize what you went through at that time and I think that's because carers find it quite hard to convey exactly what they're going through it, it can be just quite hard to articulate that and I think you tend to just internalize it a lot which is why carers often end up being invisible because you're just going through this struggle on a, on a daily basis I was very glad to set it down because I think it sort of demonstrates what carers do go through and how all the challenges emotional physical health financial and so on as I say that Leonard Wolf went through as well um, and is therefore a universal experience because he was going through it over a hundred years ago yeah and what was touching I think was to see that evolution in your relationship with your father how I think when people first go into care and it's this burden and responsibility yeah, yeah. but then towards the end of the memoir yeah it's something that bonds you with him yeah. and it's I think what Leonard Wolf said about Virginia Wolf also mm. it's it's all, the the illness is a part of her mm. and it's that acceptance and yes that can bond you closer yeah because he recognized that it was part of her genius and therefore in a way it did draw them closer together although they at the same time as as you were discussing they end up in a relationship that is um played out as care a patient as well as husband and wife in a way is more intimate and at the same time creates more distance as well um and so, yeah, with my father, he had always been rather, as I say, an elusive figure. And I'd always been much closer to my mum, who passed away on Christmas Day 2011. And suddenly it, was, it became a very intimate thing because I was going into hospital. And to prevent him being dehydrated, I would give him a bottle of water with a straw or a drink with a straw. And I was sort of feeding him as though he was a child, which is very much, I suppose, an element of caring when your parents get old and suddenly they're your children and you're responsible for them. And so, yes, those kind of suddenly those acts were very intimate and very bonding and, and quite moving. And um, it did bring us much closer together after a lifetime of almost being strangers. Yeah. And you've mentioned that you are a publisher with Dodo Inc., a really great indie press. And we would love now for a chance to hear a bit more about it and what titles you have upcoming. Yes. Um, so we set up the publisher in the autumn of 2015 from a Kickstarter. Um, and people very generously took a chance on us and donated £8,000. Um, 
and we've published difficult and daring fiction, the sort of fiction that wouldn't be perhaps published by mainstream presses, um, which is obviously a characteristic of a lot of indies. Um, and we've published Serafina Madsen and Tom Tomaszewski, their debut novels. In our second year of publishing, um, we published Monique Roffey, who wrote an erotic novella called The Tryst. Um, and so that was... I mean, that was a big success and it got good reviews and so on. But it was also just a, a good moment for us because Monique was sort of in the wilderness. And obviously she's a very talented writer. And now she's finally got the huge acclaim that she deserves by winning the Costa and the overall Costa. And she's now thriving and doing wonderfully. But at that time, she didn't have a publisher. So and she has been very kind in interviews and in saying that we stepped in and and picked her up and 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 published her book and how pleased she was about that at the time and we also published as a god might be by neil griffiths who again was an award nominated novelist who had been dropped by by his publisher so um yeah we have we've had a nice mixture of debut writers and introducing them and also just celebrating very talented writers who, for whatever reason, haven't perhaps been able to find a publisher, but are very, very talented and deserve to be published. So, um, and then we were in hiatus for a while, um, and that was partly because looking after my father during that year was so harrowing. I did have quite a lot of health problems afterwards, so running an indie press takes so much energy, it just wasn't possible to sustain it, and I had to have a period of recovery, to be honest. Um, but um, it, w it was also a greatly exciting time. And I should also pay tribute to Alex Spears because of the three of us, he had the most knowledge and he brought so much insight into, into the process. And I, oft I often feel of the three of us, he, he doesn't get as much acclaim and attention and he, he just deserves it all. <laughs> so um, because he, he had all the contacts, he knew how to find a brilliant cover designer. He knew how to get a book typeset. Um, my skill was mostly editorial, just discovering writers and editing them. And um, Alex brought so much um, to the to the press, and he was a real star. So the next book is um, by Serafina Madsen, and it's her second novel, and it's called Aurora, and it's a surreal um, book which explores witchcraft but I think it's I think it's an unconventional take on witchcraft and I think it explores it from a fresh and radical angle this is a contemporary novel and I think she looks at power and the relationships between the sexes um, and the way witchcraft might influence that um, from quite a controversial and interesting point of view so in terms of your own writing, is there yeah. anything that we can keep an eye out for in the coming yes. months, weeks, years? <laughs> yes. So so after the quiddity of Will Self, I started another novel and my nonfiction seems to evolve more quickly than my fiction. My fiction often uh, it seems to take years and years to gestate. So for many, many years, I was working on a follow up novel called The Watermark, which is about it's a love story and it's about um, two lovers who book surf um, so they become trapped in narratives um, they're psychologically trapped in the narratives of books and they play out these narratives and their love story plays out across various books so there's a section set in the Victorian era in 1861 and, and in, there's another section set in Manchester in the modern day era um, 
a section set in the future and another in the Edwardian era. So it's this epic book um, that took an awful long time to get right because, again, a bit like The Crudity of World Self, I was playing with quite a difficult conceit and it was like, how do I make this work? So that um, so that it's not so that I'm playing around with this and enjoying it, but it's not too artificial. So that these characters breathe and have life and feel like real lovers that we care about. So that's out from Granta Books in 2024. That sounds fascinating. <laughs> not too long to wait. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> and do you have any plans in the future to make a return to memoir writing? Um, yes. So. Um, I'm also working on a non-fiction book for Atlantic Press, um, which explores the theme of bisexuality and the history of it. So it's looking at cultural figures like David Bowie, Marlene Dietrich, Madonna, Bessie Smith, Jean-Paul Basquiat. And it's sort of, so it's exploring a history of bisexuality, which is narrated through these different historical figures um, and how our attitudes towards sexuality has uh, changed across the last 100 years. So actually the opening figure is Oscar Wilde, controversially, oh, yeah. which I, <laughs> who I have um, um, cited as a bisexual figure, which not everyone may agree with. But um, so that's should be out um, after the novel because I'm still working on that and still researching it. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much, Sam. And yeah, just to say again, Sam's essay is featured in our October-November issue. And yeah, please do pick up a copy and we hope you enjoy it. Thank you so much. Uh, you can find us at The London Magazine on Twitter, um, at The London Magazine on Instagram, and we're just The London Magazine on